Welcome to this episode of the Civil Law Podcast from Pump Court Chambers. Today I am speaking with Tim Akers, who is a member of our team at Chambers, and we are going to be discussing a professional regulation topic, and we're going to be looking at decisions of regulators based on the findings of other bodies. So Tim, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Louisa. Good afternoon. Afternoon. Do you want to give our listeners a little bit of information about yourself and the type of work that you do first? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was called to the bar in 2005. Um, after that, I worked for uh, the Crown Prosecution Service prosecuting in the East Midlands. Then I was at a, uh, a high street solicitors firm doing defence work. Then I came to the bar uh, and have been at the self-employed bar since 2013. These days, my practice encompasses regulatory work and uh, some criminal work. The regulatory work is really professional discipline work, so representing any professionals involved in any sort of difficulties that they might get into where they're accused of misconduct, representing them in front of their professional regulator. Uh, so I've represented people in front of the HCPC, uh, the BACP, the UKCP, uh, the CISI, various uh, regulatory uh, and membership bodies. I also sit as the clerk to the uh, disciplinary tribunal of the Chartered Institute of Legal Executives and a legal advisor to the General Optical Council. Excellent. Thank you. So you are definitely our fountain of knowledge on, on this topic. And hearing you list off those regulators reminds me just how much regulators do love an, an acronym. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as discussed, today we are going to be looking at when and whether regulatory bodies are able to make decisions based on partly or wholly on the decisions of another body. So First question really is, is it possible at all for a regulator to make a decision based on another person's, another body's findings? Well, it's a great question, Louisa. Um, and it's it's probably something of, of a loaded question, as you know, because uh, I think my answer is it's possible for a regulator to take the findings of another body into account. Um it's a, perhaps a different question as to whether it's possible for a regulator to make a decision based on the findings of another body. But perhaps the starting point uh, is the specific regulator's professional conduct rules governing the admissibility of evidence in their particular proceedings. So starting point to look at that particular regulator's professional conduct rules, what do they say about adducing, for example, previous convictions, uh, determinations of other bodies exercising a professional disciplinary function, uh, what do they say about the admission of judgments of other courts or statutory tribunals, uh, and if there is specific pre provision to admit these documents, uh, are they admitted as conclusive evidence or prima facie evidence? That's helpful. Thank you. And do you find that there is often from one regulator to the next some similarity in those rules regulating the admissibility of that evidence, for example, in relation to a criminal conviction 
um, versus an, another finding, perhaps not quite as definitively, for example, a decision taken by an employer? I think so. I, I think generally speaking, criminal convictions are usually taken to be conclusive evidence that an offence has been committed. Uh, and you will have come across that it's, I think it's the leading case of the GMC and Spackman, which is a case all the way back from 1943, uh, which made a distinction between criminal convictions being conclusive evidence, uh, whereas adverse judgments in civil cases are deemed more to be prima facie evidence of the facts found. And I suppose that that then begs the question, what is prima facie evidence? Uh, and prima facie evidence really uh, is any evidence which tends to support a fact or a conclusion, but is capable of being rebutted. Uh, and it was Mr Justice Sales in the case of Hollis and the ACCA who made the point of saying something can be prima facie evidence and yet ultimately be found to have no weight at all. Um, for example, a witness's evidence in a witness statement that's later contradicted uh, in oral evidence or a document that on a full examination of the case is later shown to be wholly mistaken uh, or irrelevant. So it's probably right to say then, is it, that a save for when considering perhaps a criminal conviction, a regulatory body can't just simply adopt the findings of another body, for example, of uh, in, in, in a civil judgment, but has to, wherever possible, look at the underlying evidence that made that decision themselves. Even if they take the finding into account, they still have to make that decision themselves. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, whether these previous findings will be admissible or not will turn on a number of factors. So uh, it's, of course, vital that uh, tribunals afford respondents or registrants a fair opportunity to defend the allegations against them. Uh, if the regulator is seeking to admit uh, a civil type um, judgment um, in particular proceedings, then um, it, it was said in Spackman that in that sort of scenario, um, the accused should not be condemned without being first given a fair chance of exculpation. So they're entitled to seek to rebut uh, that sort of evidence when it's adduced in cases uh, before their uh, professional tribunals. Uh, and like you say, it is incredibly important that uh, professional tribunals make up their own minds on the evidence before them and they don't simply adopt the findings of a previous body that's considered a case that the same individual has been involved with uh, and that principle was affirmed as recently as last year uh, in the case of Gray uh, and uh, the SRA uh, and as you'll imagine that's particularly important when considering really serious matters like dishonesty um, which can of course lead to professionals being struck off of their professional registers uh, and so what we don't want is a professional tribunal uh, simply really supplanting its own decision with the decision of a previous body um, which can lead to the end of a professional's career. 
Quite. Now, I know that you referred to the different rules and, and orders which contain the different powers that various different regulatory bodies will have. And in relation to the admissibility of evidence, and in particular, obviously, here we're looking at the findings of other bodies, I think it's right to say that the the first hurdle in relation to whether or not something is admissible in any sphere really is relevance. And so if a panel has a professional regulator has the underlying evidence in relation to a certain question, then is it arguable, in your opinion, that the decision somebody else has made based on that evidence, is that really relevant if the panel has the evidence to make their own decision? Does it matter what somebody else thought of that evidence? Well, I guess it comes down to uh, how the regulator wishes to prove its case and how it's going to prove its case against the regulated person. Um, Now, relevance and fairness um, are important. Um, However, uh, in regulatory proceedings, uh, in the case of Squire, uh, it was confirmed that the principle of relevancy doesn't necessarily apply to regulatory proceedings. Uh, And often regulators have a provision within their professional conduct rules, which allows their professional disciplinary tribunals to admit any evidence that the tribunal considers fair, um, whether or not such evidence would be admissible in a court of law. So I, I think in order to present a case fairly, it's absolutely right for a regulator to focus on what is relevant, um, what could potentially be prejudicial, and to have its mind to those sorts of issues when preparing a case against a registrant. But the strict concept of relevancy, as you might come across in the criminal courts, for example, doesn't apply in the same way in the regulatory sphere. So coming back to your question of, does a regulator really need to use this sort of pre-existing information? Well, it may help as um, background material, for example. It may help a tribunal's understanding of the case. And it may um, go towards perhaps showing that the misconduct has been committed or that the practitioner's fitness to practice is potentially impaired. Um, But like we've discussed already, um, that material should not be used to supplant the panel forming its own conclusions as to whether misconduct has taken place uh, and whether uh, the practitioner's practice is impaired. And uh, you can perhaps look at this issue um, from the, the, the two lenses of the case of Squire and the GMC, which 2015 case, uh, and then the case of Enemoe, which also 2015, a few months later in, in the summer. And um, similar approaches were taken in those cases, but different conclusions were arrived at by the High Court. So in the case of Squire, 
Uh, the claimant was a consultant paediatric neuropathologist who applied for judicial review of the fitness to practice panel of the Medical Practitioners Tribunal Service. And uh, what Dr. Squire was worried about was that the panel had admitted uh, five judgments of the High Court and one judgment of the Court of Appeal in six cases of alleged shaking, shaking baby syndrome, uh, in which she'd given evidence as an expert. Uh, and um, she was concerned about the relevance and fairness of admitting those judgments. Uh, and in that case, um, Mr. Justice Oosley came to the conclusion that the fitness to practice panel uh, didn't act unreasonably in admitting the judgments as relevant in providing background evidence to the case and also in providing prima facie evidence of the facts. Uh, and he went on to say that the crucial point about the role of the disciplinary tribunal is that it should be the decision maker on the issues and evidence before it. Uh, it shouldn't adopt the decision of another body, even of several judges, as a substitute for reaching its own decision on the evidence before it. Uh, and the case of Squire can be contrasted um, to the case of Enemoe, which was dealt with by Mr Justice Holman, uh, and he uh, held that the Conduct and Competence Committee of the NMC had erred in admitting into the evidence a report uh, on the appellant by a supervisor of midwives because it had effectively adopted the findings of the supervisor to arrive at the conclusion that Miss Enemoe had committed misconduct and that her practice was impaired. Uh, and Mr Justice Holman held that whilst the committee may need to be informed that a registrant has been suspended or dismissed, uh, he pointed out that there's a world of difference between knowing there's been a past investigation uh, and then using the factual outcome of the investigation as the basis for its findings in disciplinary proceedings, uh, which the panel erroneously did uh, in that particular case. That's interesting. So it sounds as though the difference really as to whether or not certain information should be admissible more goes towards how that information is used. So if it is used just as, as you say, background evidence, background information, um, and going towards a prima facie case like in Squire, then it seems it would be admissible um, and admissible to be used in that way. But in, in MOA, the NMC had erred because it had been used as a basis for the finding that the panel reached rather than just simply looking at it in the round and making their own decision. So, so it's really more about how the information is used, is it? Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree, absolutely. Um, and there's something to be said also, I suppose, for making sure that the regulator is... Um, serving really a, a fair case um, and by fair, like I said, um, making any appropriate redactions as well uh, and really only serving material that it feels it can fairly rely upon and that can be taken into account to assist it in proving its case or seeking to prove its case against a registrant. Yeah, because I imagine that a registrant might well be making an argument to a regulator that to include decisions, findings of other bodies which go against the registrant is prejudicial to them and therefore not fair to be included, even as background information. Would that be a reasonable argument to make? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, when I 
represent professionals. These are the sorts of things that you need to think about um, when responding uh, to regulators who've uh, included this sort of material in their bundles. You know, is it right that this material should be um, before the panel in the first place, essentially? Um, so it, it's an absolute, absolutely proper argument to make um, that it, it might well be just simply too prejudicial for this material to be in front of the panel in the first place. And is there a difference, in your opinion, in what the decision is? So, for example, if it's a, we've already touched on criminal convictions, um, but also civil judgments or findings taken by the employer already so a, a decision to suspend dismiss um, or, or place a reddition on a performance improvement plan for example does that make a difference as to the admissibility of those findings well i think certainly regulators need to be careful about what they wish to include in their bundles um of course, the strict rules of evidence no, don't normally apply uh, in regulatory proceedings. Um, regulatory proceedings are uh, quintessentially inquisitorial in nature, uh, and that was reinforced in uh, Tuagansi and the GMC in 2021. So the, the starting point is that the normal rules of evidence don't apply. So regulators can certainly contemplate uh, adducing evidence from different sources. So internal decisions taken by employers, reports, etc. Um, I know sometimes they seek to uh, adduce things like performance improvement plans, things like that. Uh, but I, I do think they need to be very careful when thinking about this sort of thing. If you're not seeking to adduce material from a superior court of record or a statutory tribunal, uh, I think it's important to ask, um, if you're a regulator, do you really need to adduce this material in order to prove your case? Um, or is it, in essence, superfluous? Uh, if you really do need to adduce it, can suitable reductions be made uh, to take out any unfair or prejudicial material? Um, those are the sorts of things that need to be going through uh, regulators' minds, because the more we stray away from adducing uh, material that has been in front of a, a a judge or a statutory tribunal, um, arguably the less weight um, there is that can be attached to it. That's not to say it can't be done. I know that some regulators are quite enthusiastic to adduce this sort of material, but it does require careful thought. And of course, whatever the evidence uh, disciplinary tribunals hearing these cases must, must be able to show that they have carefully considered their cases in an autonomous, analytical, rational way, applying their own minds to matters and arriving at their own decisions, uh, not allowing their independence to be supplanted uh, by the thinking of another body purely for reasons of expediency. 
That's a very helpful approach. I wonder whether in your experience you find that in preparation for a a final hearing, fitness to practice hearing before different regulators, that that consideration is always given to the evidence or or do you find in representing registrants that often it's on the registrant to, to flag where there are issues and proposed redactions to documents which are required? What's your experience of that? I think, I mean, it, it depends on the regulator. Um, and I think that the approach is probably vary um, to this sort of issue. But it, it seems whether it's to do with volumes of work um, or, or other issues at the moment, uh, I think more often it seems to be that the onus is on the registrant uh, or the respondent and their legal team to identify these sorts of matters uh, and to go back to the regulator and to say, hold on, uh, do you really feel that this material needs to be adduced before the panel? Um, If so, why? What what issue is it going to in the case? How is it going to help the panel? Um, Precisely what do you propose to use this material to establish? Uh, And... Uh, sometimes I, I get the impression that perhaps uh, sometimes these issues haven't been considered by regulators as thoroughly as they need to be. And is there a difference between the finding of another body, for example, a civil court or an employer, and the finding which might be a criminal conviction? There's an there's a area of crossover, I suppose, between um, some of the criminal work that I do and regulatory work. And in terms of criminal convictions, the general rule uh, is that they are conclusive proof of the offence committed and they can't be challenged um, and a registrant can't seek to go behind them other than in exceptional circumstances. And exceptional circumstances... Uh, really comprises a very narrow category. Uh, There was a case of J.R. Retnam uh, in 1989 where exceptional circumstances were contemplated where a plea of guilty had been made under a misunderstanding uh, and um, if there was no opportunity of rectifying it on appeal, that could be considered to be exceptional circumstances. Um, or in the 2009 case of Jenkinson and the NMC, um, where expert evidence has been uh, since found to be discredited, um, or perhaps uh, where somebody has a foreign conviction that wouldn't necessarily be considered to be a criminal offence in that particular country. Um, And that was the case of Schultz Allen and the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons in 2019. Um, So just, I suppose, to uh, cover that off, the general rule is that convictions in a criminal court are conclusive proof of the offence committed. But there is a very, very narrow case. category of exceptional circumstances where uh, you can potentially um, argue that um, they don't or shouldn't constitute conclusive evidence but that category uh, is very narrow indeed and of course spent convictions um, are still relevant in regulatory proceedings 
uh, and practitioners run a serious risk uh, if they fail to disclose spent convictions when applying for registration or renewal of registration. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I, I think perhaps people aren't always aware that there are these, even though they are perhaps niche, there are some exceptions to the conclusiveness of criminal convictions in regulatory proceedings. So that's an important point. The, the case of um, Schultz Allen and the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons was an interesting one because he was convicted, I think, in California of theft of a tube of superglue. Um, worth a, a very, very small sum of money, as you can imagine. Uh, and um, he was able to establish that in Californian law, uh, his conviction um, didn't amount to a criminal conviction as such and would be classed as an infraction. Yeah, an interesting distinction. Uh, and I can imagine perhaps there are you know, some countries... Um, and jurisdictions where there will be matters perhaps more serious than stealing of a tube of superglue, which are illegal in in certain jurisdictions, as I say, and not in the UK or or elsewhere that we might be in a regulatory tribunal. Um, And so whether or not that should have any bearing on a registrant's fitness to practice in this country where something where a registrant has been convicted of something which in this country isn't illegal is an important exception to the rule, I think, to note. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, These things are well worth applying your mind to. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this has been very helpful. Thank you very much, Tim. I think we've covered the most important topics on this area um, and hopefully it's been insightful for our listeners. Thank you very much for joining us today and for all of your input. It's a pleasure, Louisa. It's good to speak with you. Thanks very much.